And on this day after Thanksgiving, two of our listeners are celebrating birthdays today. So Judith and I wish a very happy birthday to Archie Roden of Des Moines and Maggie Faber of Algona. Again, happy birthday, Archie Roden of Des Moines and Maggie Faber of Algona. We do have uh, some celebrity birthdays we can tell you about today. Former Beatles drummer Pete Best is 82, the unluckiest drummer in the entire world, getting, get, leaving the Beatles, I guess, uh, before they really got, uh, got hot. Actor-comedian Billy Connolly is 81. Denise Crosby from Star Trek The Next Generation. Boy, I love that show. She's turned 66. I think her character was Tasha Yar, if I understand, if I remember correctly. Actor Colin Hanks from Life in Pieces and Roswell is 46-year-old, 46 years old. Actor Catherine Hagel from Grey's Anatomy and Roswell is 45. And actor Sarah Hyland from Modern Family is 33. You're listening to IRIS, the Iowa Radio Reading Information Service. If you're hearing us on your television, Iowa PBS, and you're not a registered, 5-243-6833 so we can get you on our list. We need to know who's listening in order to keep our services free. And also, if today is your birthday and you're not on our birthday list, or if any upcoming day is your birthday, which I think that fits just about everybody, give us a call. If you're not on our list, we'd love to wish you a very happy birthday. Our number here at IRIS, 515-243-6833. And now here's Judith as we move on to today's obituaries. And we have no obituaries today. And so I will uh, go on with uh, another uh, state and local story. State Board recommends suspension of Des Moines Immigration Lawyer's License. This story by Clark Kaufman of the Iowa Capital Dispatch. After seven prior sanctions for ethics violations, a Des Moines immigration lawyer is facing the possible suspension of his law license. The Grievance Commission of the Iowa Supreme Court is recommending that the court suspend the license of Ta Yu Yang of Des Moines for 60 days, citing his numerous past disciplinary actions. According to the Grievance Commission, the state's Client Security Commission received a notice from Yang's bank account in 2021 indicating he had overdrawn his client trust account. Such accounts are designed to hold money paid by clients for services that an attorney has yet to provide and has yet to bill. The overdraft triggered an audit of the account by the CSC. It was then proven that certain certified statements made by Yang regarding the account were false and that Yang violated several rules pertaining to client trust accounts, the Grievance uh, Commission alleges. In determining what sanctions to impose, the Commission said mitigating factors included Yang's immigration practice, which caters to an underserved community, and his provision of pro bono work at no cost to clients. Yang cited his impending retirement as a mitigating factor, but the commission rejected that given his plans to continue performing legal work in his retirement. The board cited several aggravating factors, noting that he had been admonished previously for trust account violations, misrepresentations to the CSC, and a lack of diligence. The commission also noted that Yang made false statements to the CSC and stated that Yang has no current plan on how to rectify these record-keeping concerns moving forward and does not plan to hire a bookkeeper, thereby suggesting a lack of understanding of the wrongness of his actions. 
In sum, Yang's response to the audit and the complaint reflects a disregard for the fundamental safekeeping duties that all Iowa attorneys owe to their clients, the commission said. In recommending a 60-day suspension of Yang's law license, the commission also recommended that the court impose other sanctions if Yang chooses to practice again after his suspension is lifted. The sanctions would include that he only be permitted to practice after showing proof of attendance at an educational course on the topic of trust accounting and that he be required to keep on staff a bookkeeper or accountant to manage his trust account. The court has yet to act on the recommendation. In the past, Yang has been privately admonished on at least five occasions and publicly reprimanded twice, according to the commission. The sanctions were imposed for neglecting client matters, knowingly making a misrepresentation on an appeal in an immigration case, failing to represent a client diligently, failing to file an appeal brief, failing to appear on behalf of a client, failing to maintain client ledger sheets from 2005 to 2018, failing to complete monthly triple reconciliations of client trust accounts, submitting false certifications on CSC questionnaires, and failing to provide information as requested in an attorney disciplinary board investigation. And Judith, there are three uh, obituaries in the print edition of today's Des Moines Register, but I think they did not get printed out for us. So let me read them from the online print edition. Three relatively uh, brief uh, obituaries here. First, 45-year-old Kyle Christopher Jacobson passed away in his home in Ames, Iowa, on November 18th after a brave one-year battle with cancer. He was born October 2, 1978, in Des Moines to Roger and Janet Reed Jacobson. Kyle graduated from West Des Moines Valley High School in 1997 and Iowa State University in 2001. His career included 12 years as a golf course superintendent and the last nine years as City of Ames Park and Rec Supervisor. Kyle was proud to be an Eagle Scout and serve as Scoutmaster of Ames Troop 160. Both his children continue scouting in his footsteps. He is survived by his wife, Stephanie Jacobson, son, Adam, daughter, Aaron, parents, Roger and Janet Jacobson, brother, Luke Jacobson and his wife, Ashley, Elizabeth, a sister, Elizabeth Murtaugh and her husband, Mike, beloved nieces and nephews, aunts and uncles, along with his Wiegand family, and also his best friends, Matt DeDonker and Mike Kidder and many other close friends. A special service will be held at Homewood Golf Course, located at 401 East 20th Street in Ames, tomorrow, Saturday, November 25th, starting at 5 p.m. until 9 p.m. For a full obituary, please visit grandonfuneralandcremationcare.com. That's grandon, G-R-A-N-D-O-N. So all one word, grandonfuneralandcremationcare.com. And the obituary ends with this quote, I have fought the good fight, I have finished the race, I have kept the faith. Next obituary, 76-year-old Jerry William Kranzler, K-R-A-N-Z-L-E-R, beloved husband, father, and grandfather, passed away peacefully on Saturday, November 18th, with his wife and daughter by his side. 
Jerry was born in California to the late Fred and Marietta Kranzler and grew up in Custer, South Dakota. He was also preceded in death by his brother James Kranzler and sister Carol Hawkinson. Jerry graduated from South Dakota State University, where he met the love of his life, Gene. He served for 20 years as an engineer in the United States Air Force. Upon retirement, he continued to work for Johnson Controlled World Services and then USPS. Jerry relished being involved with his children's activities, golfing, and offering his talents through parish ministries as well as the American Legion. He did not meet a dog that he did not love, especially especially his bunny bear and Delilah. Jerry is survived by his beloved wife, Jean Lydon Kranzler, 53 years old, I'm sorry, of 53 years, they were married for 53 years, daughter Carrie Conlon and her husband Andy, and sons Jack, uh, Jake, Zach, and Regan. Those are uh, Carrie's sons. A son, Sean Kranzler, who is married to Jen, with their daughters Izzy and son Mac. Son, Ryan Kranzler, married to Tanya, with their daughters Sierra and Kayla. And brother, Bob Carrico, and sister, Jean McLemore. A visitation will be held from 9.30 to 10.30 in the morning, Saturday, November 25th, followed by an 11 a.m. Mass at St. Pius X Catholic Church, 3663 66th Street in Urbandale. The burial service will be at 12.30, Tuesday, November 28th, at the Iowa Veterans Cemetery in Van Meter. Memorials may be made to St. Joseph's Indian School in Chamberlain, South Dakota, and Paws for Purple Hearts at www.pawsforpurplehearts.org. Please visit www.mclarensresthavenchapel.com for the Kranzler family. Please know your love and prayers are felt and appreciated greatly by the family. And the third obituary today is Joan Vander Nald Grant Edgenis who passed away on November 14th of 2023 in Gilbert, Arizona. Previously, Joan lived in Iowa and South Carolina. Joan was adopted by loving parents as a newborn and grew up in Mapleton, Iowa. She attended Grinnell College and the University of Iowa, where she met David Grant. They were married 25 years and raised four children together. She was an educator, entrepreneur, and also served as a city councilwoman for Boone, Iowa. Learning, world travel, and volunteering were her primary avocations. Survivors include her children Jeff Grant, Pamela Grant Sassman, Beth Grant, and Jennifer Bailey, who's married to Jason. There are five grandchildren, Hakan, Elena, Olivia, Jackson, and Quincy, and three furry grandchildren, Teddy Bear, Lollipop, and Benji, who all adored her. A private memorial will be held for loved ones. A story about climate change. Safeguarding beer against climate change. Researchers, farmers, adapting crops to changing conditions. This story released by the Associated Press by Melina Walling, Amanda Lohman, and Brooke Herbert from Mount Angel, Oregon. On a bright day this fall, tractors crisscrossed Gail Goshi's farm about an hour outside Portland, Oregon. Goshi is in the beer business, a fourth-generation hops farmer. Fall is the off-season when the trellises are bare, but recently her farming team has been adding winter barley, 
a relatively newer crop in the world of beer, to their rotation, preparing barley seeds by the bucketful. In the face of human-caused climate change impacting water access and weather patterns in the Willamette Valley, a region known for hops growing, Goshi will need all the new strategies the farm can get to sustain what they produce and provide to local and larger breweries alike. All of a sudden, climate change was not coming any longer, Goshi said. It was here. Climate change is anticipated to only further the challenges producers are already seeing in two key beer crops, hops and barley. Some hops and barley Growers in the United States say they have already seen their crops impacted by extreme heat, drought, and unpredictable growing seasons. Researchers are working with growers to help counter the effects of more volatile weather systems with improved hop varieties that can withstand drought and by adding winter barley to the mix. Researchers have known for a while that beer production will be affected by climate change, said Marek Trinka, a professor at the Global Change Research Institute. He and his team recently authored a study modeling the effects of climate change on hops out last month in Nature Communications that projected that yields in Europe will decrease between 4 to 18 percent by 2050. His first study on hops 15 years ago issued a similar warning to his latest paper. If we don't act, we are just going to also lose things that we consider not to be, for example, sensitive or related to climate change, like beer, he said. Climate change moves faster than we might realize, but still too slowly for many to notice, he said. The fact that researchers have started picking up on this means that there is promise for adaptation and solutions in the form of farming changes, but Trinka still has his concerns. Hops declines in Europe mean changes for American producers, too. One craft brewery that gets some of their hops from Gashi said that the company is trying to replicate the flavors of German hops using new varieties grown in the United States because the ones they depend upon from Europe have been impacted by hot, dry summers over the last couple of years. That's why some researchers are working on varieties of hops that can better withstand summer heat, warmer winters, changing pests and diseases, and less snowfall, which could mean less available irrigation, said Sean Townsend, an associate professor and senior researcher at Oregon State University. Townsend is working on a project where he, he subjects hops to drought stress to eventually create more drought-tolerant varieties. It is no easy task, one that can take a decade, and one that also has to take into account brewers-made main considerations, taste and yield. But the possibility of running out of water is a reality that is on people's radars, he said. Better hops might still be a technology that's a work in progress, but the story of barley improvements is already well underway. Kevin Smith, professor of agronomy and plant genetics at the University of Minnesota, said that while the uh, spring barley is the dominant type for the U United States beer industry, Winter barley, which is planted in the fall and kept on fields during the coldest months of the year, may be more feasible now in the Midwest, where other barley types had been given up due to climate, plant disease, and economic factors in favor of crops that are less risky. 
Winter barley may also be desirable for craft breweries that have started emphasizing local ingredients and who want something grown close by. And it can also be grown as a cover crop, meaning that farmers can prevent erosion, improve their soil health, and keep carbon stored in the ground by planting it during the off-season when fields are normally bare. But there hasn't always been complete consensus on the promise of winter barley. Smith told a story about his predecessor, who was a longtime spring barley breeder. Another scientist, Patrick Hayes, a professor at Oregon State University, was describing to him his hopes for the future of winter barley. Smith's predecessor wrote on a business card, it cannot be done, referring to his firm belief that winter barley just wasn't worth the trouble. Hayes kept the card in his office and has made it his life's mission to work on improving winter barley. There are now winter barley programs at nearly every state in the country, said Ashley McFarland, the vice president and technical director of the American Malting Barley Association. She does not think winter barley will ever be the entirety of the crop in the United States, but says that producers will need to diversify their risk in order to be more resilient to climate shocks. Molson Coors and Anheuser-Busch, the two biggest beer companies in the United States, issue annual environmental reports that pledge commitments to sustainably sourcing hops and barley and reducing water usage, but neither company responded to an Associated Press request for comment. Hops can be a finicky crop when it comes to their climate, and without water you simply cannot make beer, said Douglas Miller, senior lecturer at Cornell, who teaches a class on beer. He added that the price of beer might rise due to climate impacts on the supply chain, but so will the price of everything else on the menu. No matter what farmers and companies do with hops and winter barley, climate change may affect what beer lovers are able to buy in the future. Hayes said, It will be increasingly difficult for us as plant breeders to provide new varieties of barley and new varieties of hops that can meet just all of the terrors of the climate change process. And I say terrors because it is that volatility which is so, so frightening. And Judith, we do have some um, developing news out of the Middle East uh, happening on this Friday morning. Headline, Hamas and Israel hostage release and prisoner exchange is underway after the ceasefire begins. Here's the latest from the USA Today um, group of reporters. A group of Israeli hostages held by Hamas were released into the custody of the International Committee of the Red Cross in Gaza on Friday and are now on their way back to Israel, according to Israel's prime minister's office. The hostages are the first to be released since a temporary ceasefire went into effect early today. The hostages include 13 Israelis, according to Israeli media. Thailand also said 12 Thai nationals who had been taken hostage were released on Friday. U.S. officials don't expect any Americans to be among the hostages released today. As many as 39 Palestinian prisoners expected to be women and children could also be returned to the West Bank and Gaza on Friday. A four-day pause in fighting started at 7 a.m. Israeli time. That was about midnight Eastern Standard Time in the U.S. As a result of a deal that also calls for the release of 50 hostages taken by Hamas and 150 Palestinians held in Israeli prisons. 
The ceasefire comes more than six weeks after an estimated 240 people were captured and held hostage by Hamas after its deadly October 7th attack on Israel. The temporary pause in fighting had been scheduled to begin yesterday, but was delayed by what officials said were logistical issues, including verification of the hostage release list exchanged by Israel and Hamas. Friday afternoon, ambulances were waiting at an Israeli military base to tend to hostages ahead of their anticipated release, and in the West Bank, Palestinians were gathered to wait for prisoners expected to be released from Israeli jails. The ceasefire and hostage prisoner release was negotiated by the United States, along with Qatar and Egypt. Both sides agreed to release women and children. Israel also agreed to extend the pause in fighting by one day for every 10 additional hostages Hamas releases. Here are the latest developments. A few minutes before the pause started, air raid sirens sounded in southern Israel and Israeli airstrikes continued in the final hours ahead of the truce. Qatar and Hamas say up to 200 trucks a day carrying humanitarian aid for Gaza will enter the Strip. This aid will include fuel, according to Qatar and Egypt. Two Palestinians were killed Friday and 11 others were wounded as Israeli forces fired at people attempting to return to northern Gaza near a main combat zone, despite Israel's warnings to stay put. No U.S. citizens are expected to be among the first group of hostages released by Hamas today, according to a White House official. The Biden administration remains hopeful that there will be Americans among the 50 hostages expected to be released over four days, according to the official who spoke on the condition of anonymity. When the deal was announced Tuesday, a senior Biden administration official said three Americans, including three-year-old Abigail Idan, whose parents were killed during the October 7th Hamas attack on Israel, and two American women would be getting out. Two Americans were previously released last month in a deal that served as a test run for the group release that Biden administration hoped, uh, helped to negotiate. And from page four of the Nation and World Extra, decision on future of wild horses expected next year. This story released by the Associated Press by Jack Dura from Bismarck, North Dakota. About 200 wild horses roam free in a western North Dakota national park, but that number could shrink as the National Park Service is expected to decide next year whether it will eliminate that population. Advocates fear a predetermined outcome that will remove the beloved animals from Theodore Roosevelt National Park. An extended public comment period ends Friday on the recent environmental assessment of the park's three proposals, reduce the horse population quickly, reduce it gradually, or take no immediate action. The horses have some powerful allies, including North Dakota Governor Doug Burgum and U.S. Senator John Hoven, while advocates are pulling out all the stops to see that the animals stay. Park officials say they want to hear from the public. The horses are popular with park visitors, who often see and photograph them along the park's scenic road and hiking trails through the rugged badlands. 
Evaluating whether the horses belong in the park has been a long time in coming, and it realigns us with our overarching policies to remove non-native species from parks whenever they pose a potential risk to resources, said Jenny Powers, a wildlife veterinarian who leads the wildlife health program for the National Park Service. She told the Associated Press last month, this is not an easy decision for us, but it is one that is directly called for by our mission and our mandates. One of the horse's biggest advocates fears park officials have already decided to oust the horses. Chasing Horses Wild Horse Advocates President Chris Keeman cite several alternatives for keeping horses that park officials considered but dismissed in the recent environmental assessment. In the document, the Park Service said those alternatives would not be in alignment with uh, NPS's priorities to maintain the native prairie ecosystem and would not address the animal's impacts among its reasons. Cayman said she is optimistic that we will ultimately win this fight. I do not have any faith that the park will do the right thing and keep the horses in the park. Even if the horses ultimately stay, Park Superintendent Angie Richmond said they would have to be reduced to 35 to 60 animals under a 1978 environmental assessment. The ongoing process is part of the park's proposed management plan for livestock, a term the horses' allies reject. Wild horses were accidentally fenced into the park in its early years. They were eventually kept as a historic demonstration herd after years of efforts to eradicate them, according to Castle McLaughlin, who researched the horse's history in the 1980s as a graduate student working for the Park Service in North Dakota. Wild horse advocates would like the park to conduct a greater environmental review and want to ultimately see a genetically viable herd of at least 150. Here's a story from page 4A of today's Des Moines Register. The JFK assassination remembered. Surviving witnesses share stories to mark the 60th anniversary. Dateline Dallas. Just minutes after President John F. Kennedy was fatally shot as his motorcade rolled through downtown Dallas, Associated Press reporter Peggy Simpson rushed to the scene and immediately attached herself to the police officers who had converged on the building from which a sniper's bullets had been fired. I was sort of under their armpit, Simpson said, noting that every time she was able to get any information from them, she would rush to a payphone to call her editors and then go back to the cops. Simpson, now 84 and pictured with this story, a white-haired um, older lady holding up a picture in her home, she is among the last surviving witnesses who are anniversary of the uh, um, assassination on November 22nd of 1963. Stephen Fagan, curator of the Sixth Floor Museum at Dealey Plaza, which tells the story of the assassination from the Texas School Book Depository, where Lee Harvey Oswald's sniper's perch was found, says a tangible link to the past is going to be lost when the last voices from that time are gone. He said, so many of the voices that were here, even 10 years ago, to share their memories, law enforcement officials, reporters, eyewitnesses, so many of those folks have passed away. Peggy Simpson, former U.S. Secret Service agent Clint Hill, and others are featured in JFK, One Day in America, a three-part series from National Geographic released this month that pairs their recollections with archival footage, some of which has been colorized for the first time. 
Director Ella Wright said that hearing from those who were there helps tell the behind-the-scenes story that augments archival footage. She said, We wanted people to really understand what it felt like to be back there and to experience the emotional impact of those events. People still flocked to Dealey Plaza, which the presidential motorcade was passing through when Kennedy was killed. Fagan from the museum said, The assassination certainly defined a generation. For those people who lived through it and came of age in the 1960s, it represented a significant shift in American culture. President Joe Biden, who was in college when Kennedy was killed, recalled on Wednesday being glued to the news in silence along with his fellow students. He said, on this day, we remember that we saw a nation of light, not darkness, of honor, not grievance, a place where we are unwilling to postpone the work that he began and that we all must now carry forward. On the day of the assassination, Peggy Simpson had originally been assigned to attend an evening fundraising dinner for Kennedy in Austin, Texas. With time on her hands before she needed to leave Dallas, she was sent to watch the presidential motorcade, but she was not near Dealey Plaza. Simpson had no idea that anything out of the ordinary had happened until she arrived at the Dallas Times-Herald's building where the AP's office was located. Stepping off an elevator, she heard a newspaper receptionist say, All we know is that the president has been shot, and then heard the paper's editor briefing the staff. She raced to the AP office in time to watch over the bureau chief's shoulder as he uh, filed the news to the world, and then she ran out to the Texas School Book Depository to track down more information. Later, at police headquarters, she said she witnessed a wild, crazy, chaotic, unfathomable scene. Reporters had filled the hallways where an officer walked through with Lee Harvey Oswald's rifle held aloft. The suspect's mother and wife arrived, and at one point authorities held a news conference where Oswald was asked questions by reporters. Peggy Simpson said, I was just with a great mass of other reporters, just trying to find any bit of information. Two days later, Simpson was covering Oswald's transfer from police headquarters to the county jail when a nightclub owner, Jack Ruby, burst forth from a gaggle of news reporters and shot Lee Harvey Oswald dead. As police officers wrestled with Ruby on the floor, Simpson rushed to a nearby bank of telephones and started dictating everything I saw to the AP editors. In that moment, she was just thinking about getting out the news. She said, as an AP reporter, you just go for the phone. You can't process anything else at that point. Simpson said she must have heard the gunshot, but she can't remember it. Probably Ruby was two or three, two, uh, two or three feet away from me, she said, but I didn't know him, didn't see him, Dim did not see him come out of the crowd of reporters. Simpson's recollections are included in an oral history collection at the Sixth Floor Museum that now includes about 2,500 recordings, Fagan said. The museum curator said Simpson is a terrific example of somebody who was just where the action was that weekend and got caught up in truly historic events while simply doing her job as a professional journalist. Well, that's going to do it for the first 90 minutes of um, our reading of the Des Moines Register. I'd like to thank Judith Linden. My name's Dave Buzik. It's been our pleasure to read for you on this Thanksgiving holiday. We'll take a short break now and allow our next readers to get into place. Have a good weekend.
Welcome back. Your new readers are Doug Kretzinger and Jim Hoffman. We're going to continue with articles from the Des Moines Register and USA Today. And here's Jim with our next article. Thanks, Doug. And uh, we'll start off here on the opinion page of the USA Today this morning. This uh, opinion written by Stuart D. McLaurin. Uh, He's an opinion contributor. He's president of the White House Historical Association, uh, which is a private, nonprofit, nonpartisan organization founded by First Lady Jacqueline Kennedy in 1961 to privately fund maintaining the museum standard of the White House and to provide publications and programs on White House history. And Stewart writes, we lost a president she lost a husband. And uh, this is a a rather long opinion piece, and so I'm going to read part of it and then turn it over to Doug for the closing part. By November 1963, First Lady Jacqueline Kennedy was America's most admired woman and a renowned cultural diplomat bringing in a new standard of style, grace, and sophistication to the world stage. How it all ended in seconds in Dallas is well known. But Jacqueline Kennedy's journey through the horror of President Kennedy's assassination is one of the most remarkable stories in White House history. The 34-year-old widow whose anguish was shared with the world and whose steel and grace helped carry her nation through one of its lowest moments. Sixty years ago on Friday, November 22nd, when President and Mrs. Kennedy disembarked from their plane at Love Field, it was her first official trip since the loss of their baby Patrick, who had died in August after a premature birth. The first lady picked out a carnation pink Chanel suit and matching pillbox hat to wear in the Texas sun. Sixteen cars and a dozen motorcycles set out for the Dallas Trademark, stopping twice so the president could get out and shake hands. Crowds sometimes twelve deep lined the downtown streets, yelling, Jack Lee, wherever she waved her white-gloved fingers. As the motorcade approached Dealey Plaza, there were loud cracks, rifle shots ripped through President Kennedy's neck and shattered his skull. He crumpled, and his wife cradled his head and shoulders as the convertible raced away. They've killed him, she wept. Oh, Jack, oh, Jack, I love you. At Parkland Memorial Hospital, She held his hand as the doctors worked in vain, then drew a sheet over the young president's face. I want them to see what they have done to Jack. As Air Force One prepared to fly home, Mrs. Kennedy sat in the back with JFK's casket. She emerged briefly to stand numb and broken at Vice President Lyndon Johnson's side as he was sworn in as the 36th president, providing a vital symbol of constitutional continuity to a shocked world. 
What if I hadn't been there, she asked Johnson's wife, Lady Bird, according to the death of a president, William Manchester's exhaustive history of that day. I was so glad I was there. Friends and family gathered at Bethesda Naval Hospital, north of Washington, D.C., to comfort her while the autopsy was being done. Several times that long day and night, she was asked if she wanted to change out of the outfit that was caked with the president's blood. Each time her answer was the same. I want them to see what they have done to Jack. Those with her marveled at how attentive and comforting she was throughout that weekend to her bewildered children and grieving family and a host of friends. Poised, unreal, said journalist Charles Bartlett, who had first set the two up on a blind date. Tears were just a breath away, but they never came. Lincoln's funeral guided new widow in planning Kennedy's. She began setting the direction for the funeral to be modeled on the morning for Abraham Lincoln. Her team consulted a reference, which according to Manchester was the $1 White House guidebook published by the White House Historical Association with an engraving showing Lincoln's coffin lying in state on a pine catafalque. That night, the Library of Congress stacks were combed by flashlight and a truckload of 1860s newspapers and magazines recounting Lincoln's funeral were driven to the White House's northeast gate. Just before 4 a.m., they left Bethesda for the White House with the president's body. Cars uh, halted to let the gray Navy ambulance pass. Early shift workmen stood at attention and gas station attendants held their caps over their hearts. Army Lieutenant Sam Bird looked back and saw hundreds of automobiles following us, bumper to bumper as far back as the eye could see their headlights flashing. That Saturday, as dignitaries and heads of state filed into the East Room where the president's flag-draped coffin lay, students in Berlin marched in a torchlight parade. Teenagers wept on London streets. Five-year-old Caroline wrapped her arms around her mother's neck. There was no counseling, Secret Service agent Clint Hill recalled later. We were each in our own private torture chamber. Mrs. Kennedy threw herself into planning, filling sheets of White House stationery with reminders and lists of people to call or write, like the widow of police officer J.D. Tippett, who was also slain by the president's assassin. A White House seamstress was commissioned to make a black veil. She helped design the mass card, picked Bible passages for the eulogies, and saw that a basket of flowers from the White House's rose garden would be set at her husband's grave. President Lincoln's funeral became the model for much of President 
Kennedy's mourning from the use of the original catafalque and the same caisson that carried Lincoln's body to the ribbons of black draped over East Room chandeliers, recreated from underchair webbing donated by an upholsterer. Kennedy's funeral drew on traditions dating to George Washington's death, but Lincoln's killing had been the first presidential death to trigger a truly national mourning that Americans could join. Mrs. Kennedy helped choose a burial site at the National Cemetery in Arlington, Virginia, rather than her husband's hometown, Boston, so that he would be long to the nation. It was she who insisted on an eternal flame, like the one she had seen burning beneath France's Arc de Triomphe. That Sunday, shortly before the president's body left for the Capitol, she had the casket open so she could place letters from her and her children inside. Weeping, she clipped locks of her husband's hair. They rode to the Capitol, President Kennedy in Lincoln's caisson, past 300,000 people crowded up to 15 deep in their silence, listening to the clip-clop of the hooves and the rolling wooden wheels and muffled military drums. A riderless horse bucked and threatened to break free. At the Capitol, Mrs. Kennedy and Caroline walked to the casket, kneeling down to place their hands on the flag and kiss it. Through the afternoon and the night, more than a quarter of a million mourners filed through the Capitol Rotunda, eight abreast. At the Capitol, Mrs. Kennedy and Carolyn walked to the casket, kneeling down to, take, uh, to place their hands on the flag and kiss it. Through the afternoon and the night, more than a quarter of a million mourners filed through the Capitol Rotunda, eight abreast. The caisson brought President Kennedy back to the White House on Monday morning, then set out for St. Matthew's Cathedral in the late November chill, eight blocks away. A veiled Mrs. Kennedy walked behind, flanked by the President's brothers and serenaded by church bells and bagpipes. They were followed by President and Mrs. Johnson and an extraordinary procession that included 92 foreign dignitaries, members of the Supreme Court, Congress, and the Cabinet, White House staff, and personal friends. The bagpipers were from the Black Watch of Scotland's Royal Highlanders Regiment, which had performed on the White House lawn earlier that month. At the funeral mass, hearing prayers she had shared with her husband for 10 years, Mrs. Kennedy sobbed again. Comforted by the squeeze of her daughter's hand, on the steps outside as the horses pulled the president's coffin away, the army band struck up, hail to the chief for John F. Kennedy for the last time. His widow leaned down to the boy in the blue coat and short pants who had loved to play soldiers with his father. John, she said, you can salute Daddy now and say goodbye to him. His right hand rose to his forehead, shoulders squared, an elbow at the correct angle. 
It was his third birthday. At Arlington National Cemetery, after receiving the flag from her husband's casket, Mrs. Kennedy leaned down to light the eternal flame. On the way back to the White House, she talked with the president's brothers about the funeral, though they grew silent after asking the driver to leave the procession and circle the Lincoln Memorial. Then back to the White House, veil removed to meet the receiving lines with heads of state and congressional leaders and family and staff. The children charmed the room and sat in Ethiopian Imperial Selassie's lap. After the last guest left, Jacqueline Kennedy gathered lilies of the valley from a hallway table and drove with Robert Kennedy to the dark cemetery. As they bent down on their knees to pray, clocks across the city began striking midnight. She laid her bouquet next to the eternal flame. Amid grief, celebrating birthdays of Carolyn and John Jr. Ten days later, as the Kennedys prepared to move out of the White House, there was a belated birthday party for John Jr. and his sister, Carolyn, who turned six just two days after the funeral, with cake and candles and singing. In January 1964, Mrs. Kennedy gave a broadcast thanking Americans for their nearly 800,000 telegrams, letters, and cards of sympathy, including one calling her the First Lady of the World. John F. Kennedy's death is still an open wound, a story we keep retelling. It thrust his young widow onto a global stage and no one can be prepared for. The agony behind those sightless eyes on Air Force One became a communal grief, a first step toward a slow national catharsis. Thanks to a new telecommunications satellite, 300 million people around the world watched the rites of mourning, including nearly 95% of all Americans. It was the first shared spectacle of the television age. But Jacqueline Kennedy was too brave, poised, and talented to be consigned to video martyrdom or frozen in amber as a black-veiled icon of grace. She made the White House a home for culture and the arts, founded the White House Historical Association, and oversaw renovations of many White House rooms, and spared historic buildings in nearby Lafayette Square from destruction. Mrs. Kennedy had every reason to believe she would be First Lady for four or even eight years. What she put in place in less than three years is what still governs historic preservation at the White House today. Twelve presidents and first ladies and the nation have reaped the benefits of the foundation she laid. After the presidency, she went on to help build the John F. Kennedy Presidential Library in Boston and was a successful book editor for many years. John and Jacqueline Kennedy's legacy has lived on through the service of Carolyn as ambassador to Japan and Australia. The horror of 60 years ago still feels fresh, Technology made it global, but Mrs. Kennedy kept it personal, offering her grief and grit and grace to a reeling nation. It can be hard to look back at these moments, so tremble again at the pain, to tremble again at the pain, but the strength to move forward is there too. 
inspired by the example of Jacqueline Kennedy. Jim? Thank you, Doug. And uh, turning our attention to sports for a few minutes, um, first of all, the uh, sports on TV, uh, there's going to be um, a wealth of college football and basketball. Uh, uh, in football at uh, noon today on ABC, uh, and these are all times are Eastern time, so uh, I guess 11 o'clock our time, uh, Miami at Boston, and then, of course, on CBS, Iowa at Nebraska, big game there for the Hawkeyes and Cornhuskers. Uh, ESPN uh, carries Memphis at Temple. Um, Fox has TCU at Oklahoma. ABC, uh, University of uh, Texas at San Antonio at Tulane. Um, and uh, CBS SN, uh, Utah State at New Mexico, 4 o'clock. CBS, uh, Missouri at Arkansas. And uh, FS1, Air Force at Boise State. Uh, 7.30 tonight, uh, ABC, Texas Tech at Texas and NBC, Penn State at Michigan State, 8.30, FS1, Oregon State at Oregon. Um, Analyzing Iowa's draw in the Gulf Coast Showcase, uh, College Women's Basketball, uh, this written by Dargan Southard of the Des Moines Register. Uh, With the season's first sour taste washed away after Sunday's emphatic rebound, Number five, Iowa women's basketball heads down south for a busy Thanksgiving week that will cram three games into two, three days. The Hawkeyes, four and one, will open the Gulf Coast Showcase at 6.30 p.m. Friday against Purdue, Fort Wayne, with a win there setting up the Hawkeyes to face the Florida Gulf Coast Delaware winner at 6.30 p.m. Saturday. Two victories, and Iowa will likely get either number 16, Kansas State, or number 18, North Carolina, in Sunday's 6.30 p.m. championship game. All games will be played at Hertz Arena in uh, Estero, Florida. With three games in a 48-hour span, this stretch will carry Iowa, uh, will carry loose Big Ten tournament vibes as Iowa must cycle through scouting reports and preparations without much time to think. The fact that a quality matchup likely awaits if Iowa can start 2-0 offers up additional motivation for the weekend ahead. Mentally, it should really prepare us for later in the season, sophomore Hannah Stolke said, having to learn uh, scouts for each team so quickly is going to be crucial, especially for the Big Ten tournament and the NCAA tournament for sure. Let's take a deeper look at what Iowa could be facing in Florida. Friday against uh, Purdue-Fort Wayne, they've got a 2-1 record. This will be the uh, Mastodon's second Big Ten matchup in four games after opening the season with an 80-61 loss at Michigan. Purdue-Fort Wayne also has a win over Division II Great Lakes uh, Christian and an overtime triumph at Southern Illinois. 
Purdue-Fort Wayne has five players averaging double figures right now, led by Shayla Sellers at 14.3 points per game. Uh, the Mastodons were picked fourth in the Horizon League preseason poll. Uh, on Saturday versus the Florida Gulf Coast Delaware winner, assuming nothing silly happens in Friday's opener, the Hawkeyes will have an intriguing uh, matchup on Saturday. All signs on paper point toward a matchup with uh, FGCU, 3-1, and one, the tournament's de facto host from nearby Fort Myers. The Eagles have reached each of the last six NCAA tournaments under veteran coach Carl Smesco and should have a solid fan contingent at Hertz Arena. And then on Sunday, uh, against either Kansas State, Western Kentucky, North Carolina, Vermont, whoever comes out of those games, Kansas State 4-0 and North Carolina 4-0 are on track to collide in Saturday's other semifinal, assuming Western Kentucky or Vermont don't pull Friday afternoon stunners. Iowa hopes the Wildcats and Tar Heels beat each other up for 40 minutes before potentially facing the Hawkeyes on Sunday. We're ready for whomever we play, um, said Molly uh, Davis. And um, uh, Coach Bluter said she can't recall ever facing a team twice in the non-conference, but the uh, Hawkeyes are glad they might, given how the November 16th game against the Wildcats went. Another chance to show that loss was a clear anomaly could await um, disaster. Thank you, Jim. And let's uh, wrap this up here with a little Dear Abby. And Weiss admissions damage her husband's trust in her word. Dear Abby, I have been married to my high school sweetheart for 30 years. Recently, she shared details of two infidelities that she had had with other men. The first was with an individual on the staff of our church who held himself out to be my friend. My wife says it was an unprovoked attack where he forced himself upon her. But when I asked why she didn't resist or fight him off, she said she didn't know and that maybe, deep down, she wanted it to happen. The second was someone she met at a bar and had developed a relationship with. When I was away on business trips, she stayed with him overnight on four occasions. She tells me these things happened more than 20 years ago and she's been faithful since. But to put it bluntly, I am devastated and unconvinced that that's the entire story. I believed my wife to be faithful during our marriage. Now I'm doubting everything. The fact of the matter is, I don't believe her. I still love her, but every time I look at her, I think about what she told me, and I'm having a hard time coping with this information. I don't think I will ever get over this. What should I do? And that sign doesn't believe her in Florida. Dear doesn't believe, I can feel your pain, and for that, you have my sympathy. You may need the help of a marriage and family counselor to figure out the answers to the questions you are asking yourself. Once you have started on that path, ask your wife to join you. Solid marriages are built on trust, only if that can be reestablished with your marriage being healed. And Dear Abby, three months ago, I lost my dear, loving wife, the best part of me, to cancer. COVID-19, pneumonia, and heart problems. We had a great marriage, not perfect, but the happiest times of our lives. In disbelief, carrying a burden of grief, sorrow, and pain, 
I am lonely and alone, but it is getting lighter with each passing day. I know I don't want to spend the rest of my remaining time this way. We were together 40 years, rearing a blended family of four children. Then, seven grandchildren and four great-grandchildren came along. How long should I wait before considering looking around, dating, and searching for someone to share my life with? I am being bombarded with interest from women I do not know, which I did not expect, and that's signed Alone in Alabama. Dear Alone, please accept my sympathy for your loss. Your loneliness, pain, and vulnerability are palpable. This is why, when you start dipping your toe into the dating pool, it is important to take your time and not rush into any quickie entanglements. Realize that as a senior widower, you are now a hot commodity. You will meet many women as the weeks go on. There's a good reason why folks are advised not to make any serious decisions for a year after a loss such as the one you have experienced. Take your time and avoid jumping into any serious commitments in the coming months. So that's Dear Abby for today, and that brings us to the end of the Des Moines Register for today. I'm Doug Kretzinger. My partner at the microphone has been Jim Hoffman. Earlier you heard Dave Buzik and Judith Linden. You can listen to IRIS programs on any computer or smart device at any time at iowaradioreading.org. Support for today's readings comes from the Des Moines Register, Iowa Public Radio, Iowa PBS, and bensoundmusic.com. Thank you for listening to IRIS, Iowa's first and only radio reading service.